Cool. You sound fine. Like over the the audio sounds good. So. Uh, oh, cool. That's good. Yeah, that's good to hear because I wasn't I wasn't using this microphone before. Before, this is the first day with a microphone and an actual mic stand. Prior to that, I had an SM58 stuck into a roll of two rolls of duct tape put together that was like just below the oh, screen. That was the uh, that was like, the thing. Actually, I still do that if I have to. If I run out of stands, I'll figure out some way to put a mic. Oh yeah, there's a there's an infinite number of ways to to get a microphone to stay sort of where you want it for mm. half of your set. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know. It's it's just uh, so trial and error to me, like the way recording worked. As a kid growing up, I was just, you know, kind of like most people with two cassette decks trying to bounce things yep. back and forth. But once you get the bug for that, it's just, it becomes like a plastic. It, it's just like, I could see it. I'm like, oh, this is just like anything you would stretch out and make into something else, like silly putty, slow down the tape, speed it up. I'm like, these are all the same parameters. And I looked at, you know, my dad, I'm like, I think... I don't know, it doesn't seem that hard. Like we just have to put it, <laughs> you have to organize these sounds and that would be production or something, right? So uh, yeah, all that stuff came real early to me. It was fun. Like to-, to I be- saw a video of yours just getting, or just checking out, checking, stalking you on the internet. And uh, there I saw you with a guitarist in a, uh, I don't remember, it wasn't, it wasn't your Buttercup band or Demitas, which was the, um, which I just realized at like just as I was writing the words down on the piece of paper that I have for you, that yeah. that's a play on the on the cup and buttercup. I didn't get that at first. Oh yeah, the cup. Yeah, buttercup. That's right. But uh, but no- anyway, I I saw you and a and a, a uh, another guitar player, and he was singing into I think it was a drum mic inside of some kind of a plastic cone. Oh yeah, that's Salim Narala. Yeah, he's a producer from Dallas that uh, produced uh, a record for Buttercup, like in 09 or something like that. And he and I just sort of hit it off because we were both kind of the same, like kind of grew up listening to the Beatles and pop music and wanted to try to get closer to that uh, and spend our whole lives kind of getting there. But so he and I became pretty close friends and I toured, yeah, with him for quite a bit. Um, were we wearing those like kind of t- tuxedos or something? I can't remember if it was that one. That sounds right. It looked, I think it was like in a bar of some, it, like in an empty bar, it seems like if I'm remembering. Oh God, I hope not. <laughs> it might have been, I can't remember. We were on tour. Uh, we toured with the old 97s because he's, you know, he's produced records for them too. Uh, oh, that's cool. My, maybe it was that. We did a whole tour kind of through the Northeast and through the Midwest and down. And yeah, that was fun. That was like 2012. Oh my God, everything's coming up on a decade ago. It's like, you're right. Like we're both 78. It's crazy. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's I, wild the, though the internet, like any of us has like, uh, like it, it's really cool that you can kind of like live in any period, including 2010. True. Um, True. Yeah. And check I, out stuff. Yeah, it's amazing now. Like, uh, you know, back before I had friends who were touring um, internationally back in the 90s and they would go to these video stores like in Tokyo or Berlin and they would just have the bootleg tapes that you find on YouTube every day now. Like, you know, it would be hard to find footage of Miles Davis or Charlie Parker or somebody like that. And those people, you know, would stock and archive those things so you could buy them. But now, literally, like the door is just wide open. I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a whole generation of new players who have full access to anything they want like that's i don't know if it's good or bad i I see it as both i think in a way because the struggle was trying to find the music right as kids growing up right like the inertia of like getting something and then maybe you listen to it a lot harder once you had it like more because it wasn't like on to the next thing 
No, I would just put the needle back and keep listening to this phrase over and over. I mean, again, there were no phrase tools yet. There wasn't a sampler you could <laughs> just get in there and, uh, you know, like more teaching devices, basically. But but training your ear to find those things, I think, is the best way. Like, I still say to my students that it's your <clears throat> it's your record collection, really, that that's going to be like your library. And that's what you'll study as you get older and you'll go back and you'll pull out an old album and go, oh, yeah, I kind of know what that is now. You know, like you can see your progress as you as you as you keep going. But absolutely. Yeah, that's it's funny. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I had a right. I had a teacher in college, not a music teacher. Um, uh, writing t uh, English professor and uh, that they, they would stress like be careful what you read because that's going to end up being like be careful like what your influences are because that's going to end up being like that's not know, a, like that's a great that's a great uh, piece of advice Did there's you, an, sorry go ahead any English uh poor, badly <laughs> but yeah um you was from my you know my my old school and yeah i was i was uh i don't know if it said it in that interview but i was sort of on the decade planet at that you know that college i, I started in 81 and i finished in 92 and in between then i was just playing and you know trying to get my career going but my dad was adamant that i get this you know this degree he was just like look this may not work out <laughs> you know you might end up just teaching English or something, but that's not so bad. You're still at least close to this thing you like. And I'm like, no, it's going to work out. But but for you, I'll do it. And so I just kept going back. I, I remember writing, um, you know, term papers on planes, you know, like flying back from gigs. I'm just and my friend just going, yeah, no, let's write a song. Come in. Don't work on that. I'm like, no, I got I to gotta finish this. And then I have to type this up when I get home. It was literally that long ago. That's wild. Yeah, I'm yeah. on page four of eleven, man. Just let me be. I'll have it done by the time we we have to like put our tray tables up. Yeah, you just be dude. Check out this verse, though. I'm like, oh, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> We'd start messing with it a little bit. I'd be like, dude, I gotta, I gotta get back to work. Um, all of that was was kind of going on, but it was fun. Like again, you're young and you have the energy to kind of pursue several things at once. Like that's definitely what I see people do in their twenties is is attack a bunch of different things to see what's gonna stick, right? But but finishing the degree really did help me. I, I enjoyed studying English. It was just some other discipline of art that I, I enjoy still. And so, yeah, I don't know if it helped my lyric writing at all. I don't know if <laughs> it did. But um, but it certainly just, you know, deepened my appreciation for just art in general and literature. Yeah. So that's what they tell you at a liberal arts school, isn't it? That yeah. yeah it's, like, uh, in that's in the brochure. Yeah, it's like it's so impractical. But but if you're just going to follow your muses, it's fine. I, I really I'm still you know friends with a lot of my professors from that era. Um, my band at the time was doing okay, so I remember playing these big banquets, you know, for, you know, like the hoity-toity people of San Antonio, and there would be the dean of my, of the English department sitting down in front of me, and he'd look up like, oh, this is your real job. I'm like, yeah, what's up? <laughs> that was always fun. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, maybe that's as good a place as any to, like, backtrack into yourself as teaching. Oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> do you mind? So generally, the way I've been doing these is to kind of um, back into how teaching fits into your life now and how it's kind of fit into your life throughout your career. Um, so probably there were times during your musical career when it was more important or less important or a bigger part or a smaller part. Absolutely. And um, so I was hoping to kind of get there and see, starting with really just like how you got started playing and you kind of already got into it a little bit, but... Um... Yeah, but, but basically, <clears throat> um, both my parents could play, as well as my grandfather on my dad's side. So, so there was music around. We had a piano, my dad had a guitar, 
uh, my mom had like really good pitch. She could just go to the piano and find the chords of a song. And they had a pretty good record collection of, you know, the Frank Sinatra stuff, Nat King Cole, Johnny Mathis, um, a few of the like Tres Panchos. I remember hearing the mariachi trio music because we're, you know, only two hours from Mexico here. And so all of that stuff is just kind of filtering around the house until I see help. I see help on television. It's like broadcast and I'm like six, maybe. Mm -hmm. and everything changes. I'm just like, we don't have any of these records. What is this music? I have to find what that is. And so my aunt, my mom's oldest sister, came to visit one summer. She was a school teacher. And she would always take us to this little five and dime to get toys. But that day, I saw the soundtrack in a rack by the, by the cashier. And I'm like, oh, I want this. She's like, that's not a toy. I'm like, I have to have this. And she's like, oh, <laughs> it's it from here. I go home and I put it on. And it's the soundtrack, so you actually hear some symphonic music before help begins. And it's even better. I'm just like, oh my god, this is just like the movie. And then when they go, <laughs> it's just like over. Now I'm talking to you. That's literally where it goes from hearing the first chords of help on that LP to now. It, it truly was just like hooked. And then I was like, okay, we have a piano, I have a guitar. I kept tuning the guitar to open keys, right? So I could just play. That's cool. But my neighbors would come by and go, dude, they're not playing like that. I'm like, they're, look at their fingers. They're like playing chord shapes. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're not doing this. What am I going to do? That's such a classic thing that you do to a kid. Kind yeah. of play dumb and be like, oh, interesting. It's weird. Their guitars don't look like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's so much just piecemeal like information you're getting. Um, you know, the very first lessons I get are after my mom passes away. And uh, again, it's my I'm aunt. sorry to hear that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was it was a while back. I was 13. And so, you know, John and Paul lost their mothers pretty early, too. It sort of forces you to find some sort of relief, right? And so the very first guitar lessons I take are from this guy, and it's just like me now. He pulls up in an old car, an old station wagon, brings in his guitar. We sit there through one of those Mel Bay books, and I play everything in the wrong key by ear. I'm just looking at the titles. Mm -hmm. and, that would be... Right? And I'm just doing it. And he's like, look, you obviously don't like this. I'm like, no, look at my walls. They're covered with Kiss and Rush posters. Like, let's let's jam out. What do you do? Do you play guitar? He's like, no, I play. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm 13. You know, like, I'm just like, well, bring your can you bring your bass? He's like, well, yeah. So then he starts to bring his bass and then he's just going showing me the bass lines. And I'm like, OK, so that's underneath this. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I'm like, can I do those two things at the same time? Right? And I was just like, oh, this is great. So the last couple of lessons when we just threw the book away were great. And that was my first really introduction to what teaching could be, which was like, well, we don't have to work for books. We just pick songs we like and just kind of attack them, right? By ear, really. And we see the techniques as we go, and we might catalog them in our mind as some, as some sort of system. But it was really just getting closer to music immediately that made me like brighten up and feel better. And I was like, okay, well, <clears throat> if I ever have to, or if I ever get into teaching myself, that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to not work from the book. I'd like to just sit there and listen to music with the student and ask them what they hear and then show them what they're hearing. And I was like, I wonder if that will work. And that's basically what happened. Um, I did. I saw a post of you. Sorry, I was sorry to interrupt, but I saw, I just want to touch on that, like freeze that point. Cause I think it's so cool. Um, like I saw a post of yours uh, from last year, the middle of last year, when you were talking about, yeah, we're still here, I'm still teaching, get in touch with this person. And then you talk a little bit about your lessons and you say something like, 
you know, the lessons are the same as they were. We're, we're going to be listening to music while we hold a guitar yeah. uh, and try to think about like what, what we do with the instrument while we're it, Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, is that, it yeah. sounds like the same thing you're talking about right now. Literally it. Yeah. I, I get a lot of students, especially younger adolescent, you know, students who, you know, have taken lessons before from somebody who did that to them, you know, like made them read music out of a book, uh, you know, learn the staff lines and all those things. And those are fine. But it really wasn't getting them any closer to what they sounded like. And then, you know, I'd ask them, like, who do you like? So you're like, oh, I love um, Joni Mitchell. I'm like, oh, OK. <laughs> You know, you might have to go off the deep end with something like that. But if they're just listening to like the latest hit on the radio, we can find those chords and I can show you how to play them in the rhythm. Uh, I can show you how to basically create rhythms, right, with your right hand. Um, all of the techniques would sort of start to come up as we get further down the road of music. It's like, oh, those are hammer-ons. You do it like this, right? Those are pull-offs. You do that. Um, <clears throat> little by little, they start to realize these are just like little, you know, kind of movements that we learn how to do. And they start to hear it musically now. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we're, we're starting to get there. And then I start getting these texts from them like, oh, that riff that I heard in this one song is in this other song, too. I'm like, yeah, that's it. And you know, it's like, OK, their their ears are growing. That's that's really and then keeping them excited and, and, and engaged in music is the other thing I really try to press, which is like if it gets boring. We have to try something else. We, we gotta, we gotta find something. Yeah, to, we have to keep the excitement up because just for those, you know, thirty minutes or an hour, that's our goal is is to just enjoy our company together and and hopefully find something in common with music that we both love and and usually it works. Yeah. Do you remember? I I know um, as an ear player, the the first time you started to he, listen and by listening hear it differently than you thought you heard it. Right. I remember, like, uh, I took some some drawing, uh, some sculpture courses in college, and as part of that, we had to do drawings every day. We had to do five drawings. Didn't matter what it was; could be a toothbrush, could be whatever. And uh, like, part of that was one of the things that the instructor stressed was just like, you can't draw something unless you can see it, because like the a concept of your uh, well, what you have in your mind about what a toothbrush looks like is actually very different than what it is if you just like follow the line and like the angle between each little point and there's a similar thing in music if you like hear a song and then you try to play it again i feel like the parts that you hear what you hear is not actually always what you have in your mind is not always what the song is so i was just wondering if like you remember the moment when you had that switch turn on that by actually hearing the notes, you yeah, um, would feel it. It was probably working with that bass player where I finally started to hear the separation of the bass guitar from just you know, the rhythm guitar. And I was like, oh, okay, those are actually two instruments that are just moving independently. Hmm. And then I remember <clears throat> growing up and trying to you know find the Beatle chords. I was using those open tunes, failing, just <laughs> terrible, floundering around. But I visited my cousin in Mexico City, and he had a Kiss record and a Deep Purple record, and I never heard these. I'm like, what is this? He's like, oh, yeah, check this out. And then all of a sudden, I was like, I grabbed his guitar, and I just went, that's all that guy's doing. So I guess I was like maybe 14, I guess, when that happened. Like, like gotcha. I'm like, okay, I hear what he's doing on the guitar. It's exactly this, and I could hear it. And then I was sort of surprised that you know, I would meet older players, and they would asked me to play a song or we'd start playing a song together and then I realized they were playing it wrong and I was like that happened at the very first audition for a band I ever did where I went you know these older guys they were like in their 20s I was still in high school 
and I look at their set list and it's basically the playlist of the rock station, you know, the, the big rock station in San Antonio. So I said, sure. sure and we play Living After Midnight by Judas Priest. Right? So, and we finish it and I go, they go, hey, that was pretty good. I'm like, that's not how the baseline goes. And they looked at me like, what? I'm like, he walks up to that A. He goes, they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, here, I'll show you. So I show the bass player the bass line. We play it again. And now it sounds like the record. And they looked at me like, how did you know? I'm like, that's just how it goes. They're like, okay, you're in. I'm like, awesome. We didn't have any, they didn't have any gigs. So we started playing these giant keg parties that my friends were playing and, you know, throwing in high school. It was, it was a good company. That sounds fun. Yeah, it was my senior year. I was like, finally, not a wallflower anymore. People were like, dude, you were jamming last night. And I was thinking like, you know, a year ago, you guys could care less who I was. <laughs> Is this all? Mm -hmm. And it did make me skeptical about that, right? So when I finally do, you know, start getting bigger jobs and start touring around with these, you know, signed artists, I am a little bit like, I know it's coming and we're all young and it's, it's fun. But at the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, all this hoopla is not quite as important as being able to play these songs and, and learning, you know, like more about production and, and just performance or any one of the things that I was learning as I was growing up. Yeah. So, so it was it's a pretty big deal lesson to learn at that age. Cause I feel like, I don't know, there's that realization. I've come to that realization in different contexts where it's just like, you're not the clothes you wear essentially. Like you have to like actually, um, but that's a pretty useful, life lesson to, to have at what, 17, 18? Yeah, it was it was really sort of uh, eye opening, because I realized I'm like, well, I'm not really playing for that. I mean, it's great. I mean, you know, I get dates now. But 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 it truly was just music for music's sake. And it still is in a way. And so um, yeah, and so I spent, you know, the 80s and 90s, basically just like chasing, chasing this career and working a lot and really only taking on a few private students every once in a while. Like it was just in between like tours or record, you know, projects and things like that. It's, sure. it's only after 9-11 actually that I begin to teach full time. Um, that's when the band I was in finally dissolves and we're out of our record deal. We were actually, I think in that, that UTSA article, it mentions that we were nominated for Latin Grammy for the last record we produced. And then the day of the awards was 9-11. So we flew out to LA, went to the- You're kidding me. No, it was incredible. Like we couldn't believe it. Like we were all excited to be there. Um, and then the next morning, yeah, the other guitar player called me. He's like, hey man, turn on your television. Something's going on in New York. And I turned it on just in time to see the second plane. I'm like, that's weird. That's not right. And then everything that day just like went like a whirl. I was like, oh my God. And we were stuck sort of in LA. I mean, Serge, the other guitar player. Right. Remind me how, how long were the planes grounded after that? Uh, at least weeks, I want to say. Yeah. They were just investigating because Los Angeles was the destination of a lot of those flights from Boston, right? From Logan. So, right. so LAX was basically shut down and we were staying at a hotel by the airport. And I remember how quiet it was. I was like, this is weird. Um, the, the other guitar player brought his parents, his wife, his sister, right? So he had his whole family there. And they wanted to go to Venice Beach that day. I was like, really? You want to go to the beach? Okay. We go. There's no one on the beach. Everybody's in a bar looking at a television over the boat. Right, right. What's going on? And so the next day, they wanted to go to Universal Studios because we're just stuck there. And I was like, I think I'll just drop you guys off and do my regular LA running around and just, you know, hit coffee shops and used bookstores and record shops and things like that. I actually ran into John Bryan that day. That was fun. Like, really? So I met this music store in Santa Monica. Yeah. And I'd seen him, you know, play at that club Largo a bunch. 
So, and I, I think I'd already introduced myself, mm -hmm. but I said, Hey, what's going on? He's like, Oh, Hey, what's going on? You're that guy that goes, because <laughs> like, we were this flamenco jazz band. And I was like, yeah, what's going on? He's like, I go, well, you know, the awards were canceled. He's like, what awards? I'm like, Oh, I was, I was nominated for Latin Grammy. He's like, Whoa, really? I'm like, yeah, but there's nothing to do now. He's like, you want to jam out? I'm like, yeah. So we got to play a little bit together. He's a huge hero of mine. So that was an amazing day. Like I'll never forget that. I was kind of floating that day, but I what went a wild. No, it was, it was crazy. So this is when, this is the day. So this is Wednesday, right? It was a Tuesday if I remember. Yeah. The Wednesday of, and so, uh, I went back to the rental place because we had this van and I'll never forget it. There were people, the agents were standing on the counters with fistful of keys, just going, who's going to Portland and giving the cars away to as many people that could fit in them so they could get home because all the flights were grounded. And I'll never forget that outpouring of, of compassion. And I was like, oh, wow, this is great. They said, no, just keep the van, drive it home to San Antonio and no charge. And so that's what we did. We drove back to play a jazz festival here in San Antonio. And that was the day um, we finished our set and Dr. John is the headliner. And one of the crew goes, hey, man, Dr. John wants to talk to you. I'm like, did I? kick his organ what happened like oh no i thought he was in trouble mm -hmm. and he just literally wanted to meet us he's like y'all played the shit out of those guitars i'm like awesome <laughs> i go you used to play guitar he's like yeah but then i got shot in the finger and man i couldn't bar and i just got it i'm like he told me the whole story i'm like oh my god yeah that those were those are that was such a weird week <laughs> i'll never forget that but after That's unreal after 9-11 we're out of a record deal we didn't win we eventually find out we lost the the grammy and uh the band sort of just goes on hiatus that's when i joined buttercup that's kind of i'm already sort of playing with my friend mitch webb's band the swindles but um but now i have an opportunity to just kind of create something new and then i need a new revenue stream right so right as i'm looking for something to kind of fill the gap a friend of ours uh opens his own music store and he says hey man i need a teacher at my shop you want to come i'm like yeah and so we start off it's very just kind of this is space tone where you still are yeah where i'm still in and the owner's a great guy he's been very supportive but um it's a great relationship we all have together and i'm there about you know three or four well i was there like three or four days a week just teaching and i really became sort of enthralled with teaching i, I realized i was like man i really have a lot of this information up here it would just be nice to just be able to share with anybody i think the most important thing to share would be like it's great. Don't worry about the bad things that would happen to you in your career. Just keep getting deeper into music and you'll see something special happens. You know, like it, it really was nice to be able to um, sort of assure younger students that, hey, man, don't worry about what people tell you. I could t I could tell them with actual conviction. Don't worry about what people tell you. Just do the thing you want to do. It will work out. And it was great. And so, yeah, that's a lot of I think a lot of what I do is, is what a confidence man would do, right? Is just go, no, man, that's all right. Like, wait, you missed that string? Did you hit this note? Well, let's just work off of this. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, well, and then we start riffing and their eyes just light up. They're just like, how, how do you know what to do? I'm like, I don't, I'm just following you. Keep going. Dur, dur, dur. And those moments are the special ones. I'm just like, okay. And they get a little taste of what it is, you know, that, that art could be. And I'm like, man, and they do turn into art lessons. If, if they're into drawing or something, I'm like, Hey man, bring your sketchbook. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah, I got to see it. And they're like, whatever they're into, I want to see it. I'm like, I want to know 
whatever other creative endeavor they're into. Like, I, I just want to, you know, uh, kind of help them up a little bit. That's that's the idea. Man, that's awesome. It, it, how does that compare to how you how you were when you started? I mean, you, it sounds like you'd been kind of like teaching off and on yeah, since like, when you were a kid. Yeah, when I started, I was trying to show people the theory and the 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 the, the actual pedagogy of music and it was boring for me even i'm like i ain't gonna practice these scales they're like why i'm like um well you just need to know them like no <laughs> like no connection at all to that feeling i thought i have to go back to that beetle feeling i had yeah that was palpable for me and that's why i'm still playing so if i can instill that in a student they'll keep playing and that's that's the hope we were talking before about um living in any time period and uh one of the things that i've been kind of like the the YouTube gods have served up to me is episodes of uh, old episodes of the Dick Cavett show. Oh yeah, yeah. I really love playing, but there is one interview. I think he was talking to George Harrison. Oh yeah. I remember and he, and he was talking about I think I think I've heard him make this point to other musicians also and he was saying like I've heard that you don't know how to read music. I find that so interesting. How can you how can you play music without reading music? Right. And it just seems to me to be such a wrong-headed concept of like what music is, exactly. like which is like the 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 dots on the page are an artifact of the thing of the actual like music that exists, you know, that is created, not the other way around. So it's such a funny it is. It's, it's a misconception of of what it is. Absolutely. I think people think of transcriptions like that, too. Like they, they just think, well, this is the transcripts. I have to like study this thing. And I'm like, well, you could, but you could just listen to the recording or you could watch the speech or you could, you know, visit that country or whatever. You could. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like it, the, the image of the thing is not the thing. Not to devalue like the no. the concept, of, not to devalue reading or, or to devalue transcription or any of that stuff, but just like absolutely don't confuse the picture of the thing with what the thing is like absolutely, yeah and and there's some things like that i think you know the beatles are a good example of 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 a band that basically becomes famous after they've done that ten thousand hours of work like they played right. a lot they played all over liverpool you know all over england in that tiny van with mal evans driving them around and i'm like okay then we're already kind of putting in the time like this was oh fun. not to mention like whatever 15 hour sets on speed in hamburg like for mu for months right they were in they were yeah. just playing all day yeah like six eight weeks or something like that it was crazy and they you know they get, yeah like george was just barely an adult i think when that was happening yeah I think, I think yeah, he was like 17, whatever. Well, yeah, my dad and I were listening to the um, BBC record when they're like, you know, 20 nothing. And there's some like little intricate fills in there that are like, and uh, we're thinking like, wow, they're really, they know what they're doing. And then, yeah, one of us brought up the, the Germany thing and we we're just like, uh, yeah, they, you do anything 12 hours a day for a month, you're going to get good at it. Yeah, they, they really did have this acumen that I think a lot of bands were looking for, but they just kind of arrived with it all sort of ready to go. But they also were great writers. They had good camaraderie. They sort of understood how to play as a band. They understood when they got Ringo, like, oh, well, we can do this now. Listen, like, this guy's solid. Like, he's older than us. You know, like, he was the... The other thing I think about is that Ringo, as the oldest guy, sort of gets a pass, right? Like, he's not... Right. He's not, he's not contributing quite as much as the other three, but because he's the oldest, they sort of defer to him in this way that I thought was really nice. I'm like, cool. And that, that guy is aged amazing. He's like 80. He looks amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's had a good life. I think I, I love him. Yeah. So, 
you know, the whole Ringo's a bad drummer thing always, always sets me off. I'm like, have you heard like kind of sounded what? pretty good to me? Like, I don't know. I mean, Paul's showing him some parts because Paul could kind of play everything. Have you seen yep. the anything on Hulu yet with um with Rick Rubin? Those are no. Those are fun. Yeah. That, oh, that's him. That's like it's like the two of them at a board, right? Just listening, and going through the yeah, going back through the tapes, and and you know, Paul's just making you know little comments, but a lot of those things were sort of covered in in the anthologies, right? And then the BBC tapes, you sort of hear their humor. That was the other thing I thought was amazing about them because Help is a funny movie, and so is a hard yeah. Piece. And it's like you know what, the guys really do sort of appreciate having a laugh. That's kind mm-hmm. of what I want it to be. I don't want it to be heavy. I want it to be light, and so. When I, was I think the, the first like interlude. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I was just gonna say the fr- like the very first interlude. Um, that's a very special record for my wife. She and her dad had that in their in their car on a tape, oh, like that's... for years. Like you know, the tape gets to the end and it flips over, and then the tape gets in the end and it flips over. So anyway, we listen to that record a lot, and there's a um, there's a nice intro in that where it's like, uh, you know, when I was when I was younger, they used to have actors in films. Oh yes, <laughs> and then they're like, like oh, it's all changed now. Like, oh, it's all changed now. So no, <laughs> those are the good bits in the film. You should see the rest. It's rubbish. Really? Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. Do, do you do you find that your best stuff gets uh, put oh, on no. the cutting flakes? No, no, no. They put that in the movie. Both John and Paul jump right on that, and I'm just like, oh my god. And then it's like, well, guess who's top of the pops in Portugal? Los Beatles. And then, <laughs> yeah. A little weird like language thing they do, and he's like. What do you, how do you think they say the Beatles? You know, how do you think they say that in Portuguese? I don't know. Crinks D night. Like he's just, yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that that's burned into your head too. The whole, yeah. It's, it's nuts. Like when those tapes came out, when those, when those CDs came out, I was so pleased. I was like, Oh my God, this is like a treasure chest of things for Beatle fans. Cause it's truly these kind of like unguarded moments. And I, and I knew kind of in my heart that they were like that. It gets, you know, it gets testy at the end, of course, you know, like they're just outgrowing each other. They're not even 30. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's the other part is you get to Abbey Road, dude, they're barely hitting 30 years old yet. You know, it's like it's still tons of gas in the tank. They all make great solo records. Uh, but George's point is right, which is like reading music would help. Like, I absolutely rely on it for some things, you know, like especially like in sessions. But um, but mostly it's my ear and, and just my judgment and what I think might sound good. A lot of times producers are looking at me like, do you hear something here? I'm like, oh yeah, what, what, what do you want? You know, do you want some counterpoint to the melody? Do you want something to harmonize the melody? They're like, maybe a question answer thing. I'm like, okay. And so we start to come up with little concepts and stuff. And so after producing enough records, um, you start to realize you're like, okay, well this, this whole thing should go pretty quick. Like it shouldn't be this laborious thing. It should really be just jettisoning ideas as quickly as we come up with them till we hit the right one. It's like, that's it. Okay, go. And then we we really quickly get to this part. But the other thing that happened uh, when I started teaching was I started to produce records for students. And I was like, well, they started writing songs, right? They started sounding better. I'm like, do you need someone to help you record this? They're like, yeah, I'm like, I'll help you. And so then they either came to my studio here or we have a space, uh, Buttercup has a space downtown and they get the taste of like sitting in front of microphones and hearing themselves back and play back. And they're just excited. And I'm like, yeah, this is another way you can show somebody like another path through this, through this music world is, is the recording world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really got head headlong into that as a kid, had the, all the four tracks, right. All the permutations of four and eight tracks. When ADATS came out, I was yeah. a bit, able to start making records at home right like with decent mics and decent pre's i could get the sounds uh the christmas record that that lauren rose put out 
we did in my tiny apartment in June. I remember it was so hot here in San Antonio and we had to turn the air conditioner off, right? To take, you know, to do takes. We we're just sitting there in t-shirts and sort of just sweating while we go, you know, <laughs> playing all those Christmas songs. But that's a, that's a perennial record. It's one of my favorites because it's just mandolin and guitar mostly. It's, there's no percussion. It's just kind of this like really sort of simple performances. I actually heard one of those at O'Hare one year, like flying. Around. Oh, really? Yeah, like I was that's cool. at Christmas time and the song came on. I'm like, that's our song. Whoa. And I look around the concourse and everybody's just sort of kind of walking around, but I'm looking at them like, wow, they're listening to me. This is weird. I'm like every one of those moments to me is sort of uh, cringy. <laughs> like it's, it's also appreciated, but at the same time, I'm just like, this is weird. Like, you know, everything about um, fame when it comes to music, I'm a little, not skeptical, but I'm just like, well, it's great. Um, maybe we can charge more. Maybe we can get more shows. That would be excellent. Yeah. I feel like that kind of ties back into like the image conversation we we're having before, which is like you yeah. are actually looking at an image of yourself, like whether it's the idea of yourself as a famous, like as a more famous person or whether it's like an actual uh, artifact, like a recording, like either one is like it's exactly. a strange experience as a human, yeah. like your brain was not d designed to see yeah. you. And I think about today how it's so easy to see ourselves, you know, post things on a phone um man like there's a whole generation of people now who've grown up with this ability to like film themselves right my my son every time i take a video of him he's always like ruin the end of the video is always like can i see the video and i'm like just <laughs> get a minute like just hold on just keep doing whatever you were doing how old is your son uh he'll be five uh this what month is it july he'll be five next month oh that's great yeah i'll be uh 58 next tuesday oh my god oh really yeah. so that's in august right third yeah and then nice. my, my wife's is the next day so we can never remember i mean we always remember each other oh that's wild yeah yeah do you have like a, a midnight birthday party we should no we never do we you never had that no i guess we should <gasps> maybe this year maybe maybe we can this is the year maybe. but we were on like an interesting thing about technology i feel like yeah one interesting thing of like you were starting to take teaching seriously mm. 20 years ago pretty much um 20 years ago this fall um, so the amount of change technologically in audio recording from 2001 to 2021 Profound. I mean, uh, is pretty wild. Like, how has that changed? Has that changed your teaching at all? Like having every student have a uh, recording device in their pocket? Hopefully, yeah. Like a lot of times they'll just turn it on and, you know, record the whole lesson, right? <clears throat> or they have the video on and we're just, you know, they, they get to look at something later, which is cool. Again, I wasn't really into reviewing those things. Like people would send us, you know, videos of us performing or live board mixes, right, from shows. And I would listen to like two or three minutes and hear some clam and be like, no, I don't want to hear the rest of that. I was there. I remember that. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't really go back and look through old photos of myself or anything like that. I'm not that nostalgic. But um, yeah, the kids come in. And then I also encourage them to just go ahead and record their ideas, right, onto the phone and then bring them in. And we listen to them. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. So they do understand that it's this ability to sort of capture something, right? And I think that's maybe the most important thing, which is like, oh, well, this is no different than a camera. This is no different than a, um, you know, a canvas on an easel. I'm simply going to capture this thing and I'm going to listen back to it and see if there's something that I can use. Right. So it's like raw material for ideas that they can hopefully manage into something else. Yeah. And then if I can help them, I do. Yeah. Because I've co-written with a bunch of people. I've produced records for tons of folks. So it's like all that experience to me 
is so much fun too. Like I, I really enjoy helping someone who just either realized a musical idea or, or kind of chored up or completely like, you know, like rearrange everything so that it feels better for them. You know what I mean? Like they're trace they're traipsing into a world that they're sort of un you know unsure about. But I've been here a long time and I can assure them, like, no, that take was great. They're like, really? I was kind of pitchy and I don't know. I feel like I slowed down. I'm like, I don't know. Let's listen back. And they're like, you're right. I'm like, yeah, this, these are the things when you get off a click or something like that, that you feel so bad about. But they're the things that lay people don't hear at all. Like, I think most lay people listen to music and hear the vocal. And that's about it. Like, it's crazy. Like, I'm like, oh, they're not hearing any of the counterpoint. They don't hear the vibration. They, they sort of get a sense that it might be big or small, you know, like the, the size of the recording, like those Billie Eilish recordings where it's like almost like an ASMR film and it's like this. Um, <laughs> that's that's cool. It's very intimate. But then, uh, you know, Coldplay is like gigantic. Muse is gigantic. Like I think of bands that have that giant soundscape and I like that too, you know. So, mm -hmm. so we have, you know, this gives students or anybody that I'm working with the idea that oh so you sort of form the sound in the studio i'm like yeah this is the place this is the workshop this is where we will like test all these ideas take the best ones combine them into the song Ta-da! it's done they're like what's the range of when you bring like when somebody comes to you like how quickly you transition into like hey man that sounds really cool like we should you should do something with that it was fast. Yeah, a lot of them were already writing songs on their own and then my my idea at the time because a lot of these kids were still in high school which was not to like kind of steer them in any direction. It was just to kind of document what they were first doing, right? And so the first records are kind of messes, but it's cool that they get to like progress. Like the next thing we do would be cleaner, right? The poem would be better. The songwriting would be better. They could see the progression happening. I did four records with this with this one. Well, he was, we're friends now, but I mean, it was, and his mom was paying for the recording. She's like, she's, you know, he's, well, she's now, She's enjoying this so much. Can we just keep going? I'm like, of course. So we did four records before he graduated from high school. Wild. And she told me recently, she's like, oh, I can't listen to those anymore. And I'm like, of course not. I don't go back and listen to my old records either. She's like, but it's interesting to hear the progression. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad you have a document of that. And I go, you wouldn't be here without those four records. She's like, yeah, you're right. Like, I totally got the bug from you. I'm like, great. Well, she just got a review in Pitchfork today. I'm like, yeah. Oh, really? That's awesome. What's the name of the student? Uh, her name, she goes by uh, More Ease. Uh, is, her, is her stage name? M-O-R-E-E-A-Z-E. -E -E. I'll send you I'll send you a link to it. Oh, I'd love to see. Well, I'll just send you the review. Um, but she was always out there. She's very uh, precocious. Like she learned violin, bass, drums, uh, and then started recording herself like right away. When she went to school and got to Austin and, and transitioned and then, you know, kind of stopped doing violin, she was teaching violin and got into like these sort of email ambient performances. Man, she's blowing up now. So happy. But that's cool. When you hit your 30s, that's really the time it feels like, okay, man, I've got a few breaks. Like, I'm going to start to build this thing. And that's kind of what happened to me. By the time I get to my 40s, it's kind of over. I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> now what? But, you know, independent recordings were, you know, still a thing. Now it feels like recordings with streaming, ugh, you do them so that you can document your work, you know, share it with your friends, friends and fans, but the money is gone. Like, there's no, yeah. there's no record deal like I got, like, in the 90s. I, I haven't seen one of those in a while. <laughs> so I well, feel I feel like people aren't buying records. Like, that's the, it's, like, pretty simple, like, you know. And all the money that the streaming companies buy, like there's those top tier artists that actually get paid, and then there's us. Yep. 
cents to the check. Mm-hmm. Like I got a check the other day for two cents. I'm like, awesome. But I also oh, got from from uh, like Spotify or Apple Music or one of those. Like something, uh, some streaming thing. Pascal for about 150 bucks, and those were the Lauren Reyes songs. So, so the 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 boon for me as an artist was the Lauren Reyes catalog was an instrumental catalog. We did six records, and it was marketed by a large independent record company all over the world. So that those songs, as registered, like garner pretty decent money, like a few thousand dollars a year. Yeah, and I didn't expect that. I was like, oh, instrumental music is never right. Like it just kind of lasts forever. It doesn't have like a date. So as long as it's like, you know, it's got that sound, you're like, oh, yeah. Right. And you're like, oh, yeah, this is dinner music. When I was in that band, I would go to dinner, you know, at these nicer places in town because we were making some money. And a lot of the big wigs in town were fans. Like I'd get stopped in a restaurant like, hey, you're that guy from that band. I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? You know, the guy who owns all the car, you know, dealerships in town. We all, we love your music. We play it at dinner parties all the time. I'm like, that's great, Red. Thanks, man. All right, bye. <laughs> I don't have a sense of uh, of San Antonio as a place. Is it, does it have kind of a small town feel, even though it's a bigger, bigger um, city? It's one of the top 10 in population, but it's a very small feeling town. When I was working in LA and, and a lot in the 90s, um, it was cool. Like I, you know, I did the LA things that everybody does and I really enjoyed it. But I could tell there was something also here that I was also getting into actually in the 90s, which was Tejano and like Conjunto music and all the regional music from Mexico that that is actually just bordered right here in South Texas. There's a bunch of indigenous music here that only is here. And so I started working with Flaco Jimenez, Freddie Fender, and a lot of these other people actually won a Grammy Award for a Freddie Fender record that we produced. Mm -hmm. And it really was a songwriting meeting where he came up from Corpus where he lived. And I'll never forget, you know, like I used to see this guy on TV all the time when I was a kid, he'd be on Hee Haw or something. And I'm like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I tell my dad, I'm like, hey, that guy looks like Uncle Eddie. He's like, oh yeah, that guy's from the Valley. I'm like, he's on TV. That's awesome. He's like, yeah, he's a good singer. I'm like, you're kind of sing like this. <laughs> and, I was like, oh, cool. and you know, um, these friends of mine that I w- that I'd been playing with had a production company and they signed him. So he comes up for a meeting and he's got a few of those wasted days and wasted nights type songs, but he goes, I kind of wanted to do some of these mariachi ballads. I used to sing as a kid and he sang one. And I looked at everybody in the room. I went, we have to do a whole lot of these. Did you hear that? They're like, that's what we're going to do. So, <clears throat> so I ended up playing guitar and singing the harmonies. So I was using that ADAT I had at the house and a decent mic, and I was cutting these harmonies at my apartment. And then I would take the tape in, right? And they'd put it in at the studio and go, no, man, you got to sound more desiccated. Like, you got to sound older and more like him. You may not have to impersonate him. <laughs> <laughs> you do and i'm like okay so i went home and i recut all the vocals it sounded like a joke when i did it i'm like because i'm just listening to like you know just the scratch track when they put it in and they mixed it in i'm like oh my god it worked i couldn't believe it. that's wild yeah so so right after i lost that latin grammy i won the actual grammy the next year it was weird and again that is something that when people come over here to work you know in my little bedroom studio uh they'll ask hey man can i see your grammy i'm like of course here and i'd show them and they're like i go dude did you know that the cones unscrews (laughs) no does it really yeah so you can clean it that's cool (laughs) they were like whoa and i'm like yeah my wife found that out (laughs) <laughs> dusting it she's like oh my god i think i broke it i'm like oh no I is it it must be watertight yeah yeah you, you must have drunk something from it 
Oh no, no, it comes in a box and it comes with instructions and it tells you, it's like, it's still properties of Nair. It's still the property of Nairus. If you drink out of it, if you do anything sexually objectionable with it, <laughs> you will take it back. And I was like, no. yeah, it's actually- A Grammy is still their property. Yeah, I think all the awards may be like that, but for, you know, if when it comes from an academy, if it comes from like something like that, the foreign film press bureau or whatever, the Golden Globes. That is wild. Is wild, yeah. And so, no, I never got the jerky thing out of it. I, I just thought, well, even even when I How got, would they know? I know, this is true. I should have taken advantage. But it was so funny that I had it on the mantle of, of, of my house for about a week. And every time I walked in and saw it, it just made me nervous. I'm just like, this is the end. This is like, I can't, like, everything is downhill from here. So I boxed it up and I took it down the street to my dad's. I, I bought a house to be close to my dad, actually, because he had Alzheimer's. And I go, hey, this is for you. He's like, really? And he opens it up. He's like, your award? Do you want me to have it? I'm like, yeah, I think you're going to have more fun with it than me. And he puts it on his mantle. And then everybody that went to visit that. That's was, great. What was that? Is that yours? He's like, that's my son's. You know. So then he just got bragging rights. It was great. Yeah. What a great bonus, too, because then it like, I don't know, who doesn't like to have company and talk about how great their kid is? Exactly. I just thought it was such a great thing for him to have. And when he passed away in 2013, I got it back. But but yeah, it's it's just this thing. You know, it's one of the things that happens to you if you play music a lot. It's kind of like the Beatles. Like if you just keep plugging at it. That That's incorrect. I'm sorry. Uh, that is <laughs> <laughs> if you play music a lot. You, I just want to be clear because there's people that are going to listen to this. Uh, if, if you play music a lot, you you will not be given a Grammy. That's just, incorrect. Just, it's not. So that, does, that does happen from time to time, but that, that is not correct. That is not accurate. This is true. I don't know why I think that. But I don't do a lot of editing with these, but I'll put a lower third in there that says that is incorrect. You do not get a Grammy. That's great. Awesome. Just for playing music. Oh, my God. That is hilarious. But to, um, I, yeah, I was, go ahead. Sorry. I, I just happen to be in the right place at the right time, which is kind of the story. Um, do you? That is incorrect. Uh, it is not. <laughs> Uh, hold on. I, I, it's really a bummer because now I'm going to have to do a lot of editing and put a lot of titles in there. That is incorrect. You do not get a Grammy for being in the right place at the right time. That is also incorrect. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It seems like uh, if you work hard and you love what you do, it's possible. I would say that maybe. And and I was just like, hold on, just let me check with the... <laughs> Yeah, that's that's we can do that. Yeah, we can do that. Okay, well, let's just splice out of the other things and just put that in there. Uh, nope, there's no splicing, unfortunately. It's just it's just rambling. Oh, excellent. just goes. Oh, it this just goes. Awesome. Well, we should we should touch on other tragedies. Uh, one i one idea that occurred to me is that I know just from seeing that uh, from my internet stalking that you started teaching more after. Um, this current tragedy began um, just because things slowed down. Everybody, everybody I've talked to, like things kind of dropped oh, um, when this started. And I know that you were saying like that 9-11 was an important milestone for you. Yeah. Another one that's come up is uh, 2008. Did that affect you in the same way that it affected other people, the financial crisis? Uh, I was sort of insulated from it by then because I bought my home. Uh, yep. I think at that point I maybe had paid it off. Maybe I can't remember, but, but there's at some point my dad is basically going, how much is left on your mortgage? I'm like, it's this. He's like, let's just go pay it off. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, you either get an hour later. I'm like, let's go. And so he was really sweet to do that. Right. So I wasn't. Was this after you gave him a Grammy or before? After. Yeah. So. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so maybe you appreciated it. Just, ch just checking in. Yeah. But he was so sweet. Um, so 
so yeah so so maybe you're right uh what was the question again <laughs> <laughs> was to th I, I was just wondering so you had you said you picked up starting you started you had been kind of dipping your toe into teaching at, right. uh before but then you really took it seriously after 9 11. um and then uh it seems like although i want to touch on this uh, for sure how the last since post COVID has gone but then uh i was just wondering if the 2008 had had a big effect. Some people who had been touring a lot, all of us, a lot of things right. I uh, disappeared for them in 2008. Yeah, in 2008, nothing had actually sort of risen up yet. Um, Buttercup was starting to get like a little bit of, you know, like attention, but we weren't out touring a bunch yet. That was actually going to happen in the next decade, the 2010. So everything was just kind of germinating in those, like the aughts, I guess, for me. And then it all starts to kind of bust out again in the 2010. So I do sort of weather the 08 thing and I, I'm, I'm remarried by then. And my wife, you know, ha is a, well, she was a reporter for the Express News, the newspaper here in San Antonio. And so, you know, she had like a corporate gig. So she was getting paid and everything was being split. And so we were so, kind of okay, I guess, through 08. It was really the pandemic that wiped out just about all the people I know who were just on the fringe of being able to still play music and then just retired, right? Like there was a bunch of older guys I knew that just kind of quit. I definitely had to go back kind of, you know, the remote teaching thing was difficult, but I definitely had to dip into some savings to just kind of make ends meet. And I was like, wow, this is unsustainable. We got to figure out. And then I, I talked to, you know, and you did too, probably lots of people who hadn't played this little since they were in high school. Like, like none of us played any shows. Uh, our friend Rhett Miller did a bunch of, you know, stage type things like online things. And I did one or two of those, but mostly it was just staying at home and uh, trying to figure out like what to do with our time. I actually started an album project with another uh, friend of ours here in town and it's a, it's a concept album. And so we were just sort of corresponding online and he asked me, he's like, Hey, you got any songs about space? I'm like, I have tons of songs about space for some reason. <laughs> so do I. I'm like, you want to combine them into an album? He's like, yeah, let's do it. So we've been like, you know, just kind of sharing mixes back and forth. It's been fun. Is that finished? Uh, no, not yet. It's almost done. Uh, it's called okay. Indie Asylum. He's already found the artwork. We got um, one of the the woman who voiced Jim from the the cartoon series. He's friends with her because uh, he used to play in a Jim tribute band, actually, That's, yeah. so, like in the 80s. And so she did some voiceover work for us. That was amazing. So it's really That's cool. Yeah, and there was a few older songs that I'd written that were literally about space, about because I saw space as some some sort of relief, some place to go and just it's quiet, you know. Like, like I was always looking for some kind of calm place, um, because you know this business is sort of rattling at times. But yeah, yeah, it was fun. Um, so so yeah, the pandemic really took a swipe, and now that everything's starting to get back and rolling, it feels like this new variant is going to shut it all down again. So I'm I'm really concerned about my friends who already have shows booked. Uh, I have a meeting next week with a promoter here in town about a big show for Buttercup, just like a coming out. But I'm wondering now, like what we're going to do. Hopefully it's outdoors and safe and all that stuff. And so, uh, yeah. you know, having to be practical about it was incredible. And then missing, you know, just seeing people at shows was, you know, was awful. The community that we've built here in South Texas is pretty close knit, you know, between here in Austin and Houston. And down in the valley, we've got tons of friends that we go and visit, you know, and that's kind of the whole part to me of like touring is to is not just to, you know, tour and play your music and promote it. It's to see those people again. It's like, oh, hey, what's going on? Like, it's amazing to build like a little fan base like that. Not even, you know, 500 to 1000 people, maybe 
not that many, but those people will sustain you. They truly are your friends at some point. And I love yeah. that. I really do. So, um, yeah, so it really is sort of, it's, it's, it's therapeutic, I think, teaching for me. Because, you know, again, when you're sitting alone in a room and, and trying to get to your feelings and all these things and express them musically, eh, it can get a little bit heavy or it can get a little bit um, self-centered. And I think teaching turns it all around in a way that is really, really helpful. It's healthy to turn, so was, turn your attention to someone else for 30 minutes or an hour and just go, that's good, come on, Shweka. You know, that, was, that. was that, were you able to pick up more, more people in the, yeah, in that the, time? In the pandemic, definitely there was people signing up because they also needed something to do or their kids needed something to do. And, and again, I, I feel like there were sort of half therapy sessions and half talk sessions and then a little bit, you know, like playing. But I felt I felt like that connection was important it, to hear it from another adult outside your family, which is like, hey, man, everything's going to be cool. Uh, you're doing great. Like this, this is good progress. You know, like those things, just encouraging words are so important. I still remember the encouraging words I got from anybody that I buttonholed at a music store when I was a kid. Like, Hey man, what are you doing? That's cool. What do you, Oh, you want to play jazz? Huh? You know? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Oh, you need to listen to so-and-so. I'm like, okay, cool. And then I go get that record. I'd be like, Oh my God, I have no idea what's happening. But it was so cool that those people would even talk to me, let alone give me advice. And still I run into them, you know, every once in a while, I'll see one of those little guys. I'm like, Hey, what's going on? They're like, Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, still play it. You know, that's like, that's exciting. And I see, I see students that are getting out and playing. They text me like, dude, how do I find more shows? I'm like, oh, yeah, talk to this guy. You know, I can show I can tell them, you know, wh which clubs to like try or whatever. Is your second or third lesson different? Um, because you like, I'm, I imagine that a lot of kids that come to take lessons with you might not uh, know you as a performer or know what you've done and then probably Google you in yeah. between the first, second or third lesson. Like, does yeah. there does do things change once they kind of like see that you're a little more legit than maybe they thought? Maybe I think a lot. Like, ah, oh, man, my mom hooked us up to the Skype thing. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Yeah, there's definitely like, the first lessons are kind of skeptical. Like, man, I don't know if this is gonna be much fun. Right? They're like sort of sullen. But um, I'm pretty I'm pretty happy when I'm just holding a guitar in my hand, and that will sort of leak onto them. And I think probably they may Google me. That'd be funny. I'd never thought about that. But what happens is we sort of build a rapport where we can talk about like the the matters of music that matter to them become sort of like the curriculum. It's like, hey, did you listen to that other song that that guy did? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's like kind of but it's in some other key. I'm like, oh yeah, it's way up here. Here, I'll show you where that is. And it's literally just showing like the first couple of chords to a, another song by another artist they like. And it's like, boom, there it is. They, the, the light goes off and they're like, I think I've heard that in something else. I'm like, yeah, that's a very common device. Like sort of pedaling, pedaling against an open string or something like that. Once you sort of understand like how the pedaling is done, you just, you can do it now and you can make your own pedal, pedal lick up. And they just can't believe it's that simple. They're like, well, I thought I was going to have to know a bunch of stuff. I'm like, no, you just put your fingers on here and move around till it sounds good. <laughs> They're like, really? I'm like, I was listening to like a, uh, I happened to like, again, the YouTube God served up like uh, a John Mayer, like pep talk video basically. And he was talking about, or I don't it was interview or one of the things where he talks to people. And one of the things he was saying, like, is if you're ever doing something on the guitar, 
mm-hmm. and it feels too hard, you're probably the transcription is probably wrong. You are probably like he was saying, like Ooh. most of the time, like a guitarist's natural instinct is to like play things that are easy, like ergonomically that work. So if you're having to like do gymnastics with your fingers, look around on the fretboard because you might be like have it incorrect which i thought was a very interesting like point that's very good advice yeah because it's logical your your thing about the pedal made me think about that that it's just like even that it sounds yeah it's very much occam's razor it's like the simplest solution is the one It, it truly could be something like a little bit more you know complicated but mostly you just sort of default to the things and shapes that we know and you go yeah, that's it. It's like, it's not that hard. Um, as I started to move an open key, uh, open E chord around, I knew immediately, I'm, oh, that's what Alex Lyson from Rush does. That's cool. It makes the guitar sound fatter and bigger, and then he's in a trio. That makes sense, you know, to me. Like, Although a, I like how the two of us are talking about how, like, oh, yeah, it's often, like, the easiest thing, and we're mentioning, like, the two most acrobatic guitarists we can think of, like, at the moment. It's like, oh, yeah, just, like, you know. Yeah, the, yeah. The, this guy here shred is is Lifeson. I, I guess it's actually Jimmy Page, but he's so sloppy. I think. Well, I can actually play that. Like, <laughs> like the, the heart thing. he's so weird and and like kind of out. But it's so cool. It, it sounds like an old bluesman. I saw Jimmy Page at the airport in London a few years ago, and I couldn't make myself let go up and go, "Hey, what's going on?" He just sort of rolled past. You know, was he playing a gig at the Album Pan? Who knows? I, I was joking. <laughs> he was. <laughs> It would, uh, it would be great if he was like, or it wouldn't have been Aubon Panther. It would be the uh, the pre manger. Yes, exactly. It would have been awesome. Oh no, I was just in awe. I was like, oh my god, it's like a god walked by. Those records were amazing to me. Just trying to figure out like sonically what he was doing, and then understanding that he had produced those records was also something I, I pondered because I was like, what do producers do? Are they just in charge of everything? Pretty much, yeah. They they see the they're over they're the overseers of everything at that point. An engineer will help you get to that point, but a producer's the one that tells you, nope, this happens right here. And they start to do some stuff, and you're like, yeah. And I and I love you know, uh, Tape Op Magazine is a recording magazine. I don't know if you if you subscribe, it's free. But no, there are so many amazing interviews with with engineers, producers, uh, recording artists. And their story about how they came to record and how, or engineer and produce recordings is the same as, as ours, which is they just, just grew up around music a lot. They started fooling around with tape players. They finally get to a full-fledged studio and they fall in love. And they're just like, man, I love it. It's like being in a little bunker. You know, they, they describe all the things that I love about it. And I'm just like, yep, that's it. You're hooked. And you're like, man. But it's also in service of something, right? We're trying to make music better. We're trying to help the artists. We're trying to get everybody in the room on the same page. Those are the same, you know, team building exercises that the Spurs use, you know, like that, that teams use. And I'm like, this is it. We're on a team. I love it. And, you know, I'm, I was okay at sports. Uh, my brother was actually the sportsman. And so was my dad. Like, my dad lettered at Baylor. And and, uh, and I was like, you know, I was an okay athlete. But I just was possessed by this. And so, yeah, I think I think a lot of that is the same. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. What a positive uh, influence you must be on kids to, like, have somebody that's, like... I hope so. Clearly on their team. Like, clearly not... And clearly, like, welcoming. Like, hey, come into this world with me. Like, let me show you. It's not that that hard you can do this this and this and i'll help you get here like that's really that's, awesome yeah because i couldn't do the thing like hey man that's wrong or you know hit somebody with a ruler like i had piano teachers like that and i'm just like oh my god i'll never be that person i just don't want to be like i'll just be the the comrade i'll just be the person that helps you along holds your hand through this weird part but then when you get to the other side you're free 
Like that's it. Like just getting them over the hump of sounding bad <laughs> at first, because it's going to happen. And then finally, after a few weeks of them like kind of trying, it's getting smoother. They're getting more confident and I can feel it. And then you can sort of like, I'll get texts from the parents, like they're doing better in school. They're making more friends. I'm like, that's what that is. That's confidence. It's, it gives you this feeling like I'm not alone. I have this thing. It's my thing. It's shared by everybody that I know. And I'm just a tiny little piece of part of a tiny part of it now. It's empowering in this way that I think is super important. I definitely felt that in the English department at the university I was at. I was like sitting around with these people and talking about these concepts was really fascinating to me. You know, just pulling apart Ulysses or any one of the books that we studied. It was the same. I was just like, man, I really like this, this world, this world of ideas, this world of art. Almost all our friends are artists here in town. Um, the art community here in San Antonio is, is sort of smaller, but it's very inclusive. We play galleries all the time. We hang people's art at our shows. Uh, we try to, you know, get other artists to sell their wares at our shows. Like all of that stuff is sort of all, you know, recombining. And, uh, and we were trying to do that, you know, like, especially Buttercup. That's, that's the idea. I guess it's an art rock band in that sense, but it's really just trying to share it. You know? That's wild. I, yeah, actually it's, it's funny you bring that up. Like I, I was really loving, uh, get, I hadn't, uh, known your music before I found you uh, yeah. and I was really enjoying it. And the, yeah, I was thinking like, this is kind of like. I'm getting like mountain goats vibes. Like I'm getting like Amy Mann vibes. Like, I don't know. I don't know if that lines up with what you guys are going for. Uh, John, John is great and Amy is great. Like Amy hasn't made a record I don't like. Like she's just such a good songwriter and she always has good players or good producers on a record. John Bryan plays on a bunch of the early ones. And those are the records that your I'm- friend John Your friend John Bryan? Yeah, my buddy. <laughs> I'll never forget. He gave me his card and wrote his cell number on there. He's like, "Hey, man, if you're still in town on Friday, let me know, and I'll I'll get you in the club because it's usually that's awesome." No, it was sweet, and and we've had some really awkward interactions where I'm just like, "Oh my god, I'm not worthy," and he's just like, "Will you quit doing that?" <laughs> like, okay, sorry, but it's just like being in the presence of George Martin or someone to me. Like, it's it's literally like he's the other guy who who sort of like found the Beatles sound and started producing records like that. Like, I think of the Fiona Apple record he did or any of those. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah, just beautiful, beautiful things. And he's such a great multi-instrumentalist. Like I always you remember when that was shelved, that extraordinary machine was oh, him, right? Yeah. Remember when that was shelved for years and then it leaked on the internet back before it was easy to down things on the internet. Oh, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And John's mixes, I, I mean, Michael Lizondo did a good job, but, but John's mixes are the ones to me, like they really sh showcase what Fiona has. And so, it's interesting. Thank you for reminding me about that record because I have not listened to it in probably 10 years and I really would like to. That first Rufus Wainwright record that he produced is really good too. Like the piano, man, that grand piano sounds so beautiful. And then Rufus just sings and it's like gold. But absolutely, like production, um, uh, learning, you know, like session work and producing records really helps me teach. Like it's basically the same sort of concept. You know, I'm working on a record right now with a Chicano poet here in town. He's like an older guy. And he was just wrecking, you know, someone recommended me and I knew who he was. And we had a conversation about it on the phone. And then I went to do a commercial. Like I got hired to do, be an extra in this uh, commercial for the transportation company here in town, Via. And it was a producer who whose son was a student of mine. That's how he knew. He's like, man, you got the perfect look. Are you free this day? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> an untold amount of money. I'm like, oh, my God. OK, yes, I will do it. Mm -hmm. Sure enough. That guy was one of the extras too. We both walked into the the little banquet hall or whatever at the hotel where we were doing the makeup and wardrobe, and there he was. I'm like, Eduardo, what's going on? He's like, 
are you in this too? I'm like, it's meant to be. And so this sounds like a Twilight episode where he's collecting people to put on a spaceship. Like, I don't know. (laughs) It's just like, all right, we need a musician, a poet. uh, Like, oh, yeah, he's like going to like take us off into a pod or something like. Yes. Yeah. No, it was it was it was Kismet again. I just think it's kind of a small town, San Antonio, in a way. And so I think, well, I guess it's just meant to be. He came by last Monday and recorded two songs. And he he basically just started before. Like, I had the thing in record, but I'm talking. So I'm talking over the very first chords he's playing in the very first take of the song. And I just left him. I'm just like, that's the one. It goes, what about talking on the top? I'm like, I don't know. Listen, I like it. I'm like, cool. <laughs> we just leave it. And then he started to do, like, he's like, I hear some kind of trumpet. I'm like do you have one with you? He's like, no, but my dad showed me how to, I'm like, just like that. He did it. And it was awesome. He knew where to go in between the vocal. And I'm just like, this is great. And so in an hour, we're pretty much done. And he just, again, he just looked at me like, I didn't think it was going to go like that. I'm like, did you think it was going to make you do something 10 times in a row? He's like, yeah, you know, like those guys. I'm like, no, this is more like a snapshot, like a capture of, of you. And your first take was great. We tried another one. I'm like, no, it's that first one. And then he he tried another song and it was basically kind of the same sort of groove, but he nailed that one too. I'm like, that's great, man. You're one that's take, awesome. One take Jones. But he's, you know, he's older than me. He's been playing a long time. I feel like people really don't give themselves enough credit when it comes to that. Like, you know, hey, I put in some time and it's so easy to get down on yourself because, you know, you look at John Mayer or some great player and you're like, man, I'll never be able to do that. I still listen to Jimmy Page and get a little sad, <laughs> but but I know I've got some things that he doesn't have. You know, he didn't listen to a lot of country music or have to play country gigs, so he may not have a lot of those. Right, <laughs> all the things I had to do for as a as a kid for money around town, and man, producing you know playing country music was fun. I really like a bunch of country guitar players, but um, but learning to be an all-purpose musician made me definitely a more well-rounded teacher, right? Because anything that came up was like, oh yeah, jazzy chords here, let's look at some. You know, let, let's add just the major seven and see what happens. Now let's add the major nine. And they're like, oh, okay, let's add the flat five. And they're like, is that just another chord on top of it? I'm like, yeah, that's F sharp on top of E. Right, and they're like, is that all the chord is? Do I have to nod those numbers? I'm like, no, just think of it as polychords. <laughs> they were just like, and that was it. And the light bulb goes off in their heads because they realize it's not that hard. It's just this, right? It's it's moving the chord around and leaving the bass where it was. Um, in the very beginning of the Paul McCartney thing, this new documentary, yeah, he, talks, yeah. he sits at the piano and he's like, play a note, skip a note, play a note, skip a note, play a note, skip a note. And he's like, oh, it's a whole chord. And then there's another one right next to it and another one. <laughs> and he just goes up the scale and goes, Right? He just goes through the, the chords in the C scale and he's like, and then he's put the bass over here and he starts to do it. And you're just like, see, he doesn't mm-hmm. know how to write. He doesn't need to know how to read music. He just intuitively knows what it does. His dad played piano and they had one at the house, but he's always, you know, kind of immersed. And so, so that immersion, I think, is truly the key. But that, when, well, and that ping ponging, it sounds like that is valuable of like between 
Yeah. Like feeling your way around and then also being intentional. Like I feel like those are two Absolutely. Some, sometimes not the same thing, but yeah. both super valuable. Like yeah. I went through that period in the late 80s or mid to late 80s where I was kind of fed up with the metal music I was playing. It was it was technical and I love Van Halen and Michael Schenker and all the guys I grew up listening to. But I could hear something else. Like Steely Dan had it uh you know, a couple of bands were, were dealing with sort of jazzy things. And then the smooth jazz thing starts to happen around then. And then there's a couple of guitar players who are basically like feel players, not like George Benson, but they have nice tone and the chord progressions are interesting. And I start to get into that. And that's kind of what led me into that Lauren Reyes world, that instrumental world. And I bought, you know, the Coltrane and Miles stuff and it's amazing, but I don't really, I'm not a jazz guitarist, you know, like I, I have a friend that I grew up playing with and he plays bass with Brantford Marsalis. Like he's a jazz bassist, like he's great. Eric Rivas, he's incredible. And the other bandmate I had, JJ Johnson, played with John Mayer for years. He was the drummer, the black drummer. And then he moved on to Derek Trucks. He played with Derek Trucks for 10 years and now he's playing with Gary Clark Jr. And all he did was move, you know, to California or Austin and, you know, leave San Antonio to pick up those jobs. And a lot of people will tell me, he's like, how come you didn't stay out in L.A.? You could have gotten one of those jobs. I'm like, I don't know. Like being a sideman is cool, but being an artist is more fun. It, there may be less money in it and it may not lead anywhere, but it's fun to make your own music. It's fun to make it up. It's fun to help other people make their own music up. And so I kind of headed in that direction and I'm pretty happy for it. Yeah. It's, I, I'm really I, glad that uh, if nothing else that I, I uh, am able to start adding you to my round of uh, oh, uh, things that I listen to. So man, that's, that's glad really, I found you. I appreciate that. Thank you, man. Well, thank you for finding me. This was a fun conversation. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, well, before uh, we should probably wrap it up because I don't want to keep you on the phone all day and keep the thing um, a million hours long, but because um, I don't think there's any part of this that I want to cut out. Um, but uh, what do people you are? Are you still accepting students now? Like, how do people get in touch with you if they want to uh, get the full Reyes? If you went to spacetonemusic.com, there's probably like a little you know, like uh, a page for the lessons. And I think there is a little description of me and, and what's happening and the rates and all that stuff. So, yeah, spacetonemusic.com is the place to visit if you'd like to do an online lesson. Absolutely, that'd be fun. And you, nice. and I'm still paying through the store, which is nice. So the store still gets a little bit of money. I kind of like helping them out because they truly did help me out at a, when I was in dire straits, man. Like in the early 2000s, I was like looking for that revenue stream, like what's it gonna be? And you know, there was my friend Jason to to offer me a job. And, I, and it really did kind of change me. It, it, it helped my attitude in a way that I really didn't think it needed, right? But it really made me more humble. And I think that's an important trait to have when you play music because it's easy to get up about what you do. But I'm not sure if it comes from the right place, perhaps it's OK. But I really feel like music is just humbling in and of itself. And it's a gift to, to be able to any, be anywhere near it. It's just and it's a pleasure to share that gift with anybody. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed the conversation and um, hope to have more in the future. Yeah, you're a good interviewer, man. Thank you for keeping me on track. I, I start to ramble like an old. I, uh, I do not <laughs> recall doing such things, but um, it was fun talking to you. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. It was fun.